Welcome to This Week in the Ancient Near East, the podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. With me, as always, are two academics from real institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. In another life, He's a baseball writer covering the Yankees while she is a successful real estate agent in Scarsdale, New York. This week, we're discussing a provocative discovery of exotic species, including bananas, soybeans, and turmeric in the Southern Levant, species that originated far away in New Guinea, China, and the Indus Valley, and yet made their way west by the middle of the second millennium BCE. To make it more interesting, these discoveries were made by scraping the plaque off of teeth from burials. So let's go to the lightning round. When's the last time you ate a banana? Rachel? Yesterday morning. Yesterday morning, really? JP? Yeah. I haven't had a banana for a while, but I like bananas. I just, I just haven't bought one recently. Hmm. That's interesting, because I don't know why anybody wouldn't buy a banana when they have the possibility of buying a banana. I haven't eaten a banana since sometime in the 1960s. When, when did you last have a banana daiquiri? Uh, probably never. Um, I can't even eat banana um, lifesavers. I find <laughs> the taste of bananas so... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's too bad that the expression won't come across on the, on the, the, the audio of the podcast. It just so bananas foster is out of the question. I suppose some kind of radically transformed banana product that was, you know, many, many steps away from the original mushy monochromatic banana ness of bananas. Banana bread, banana cake. Bonomo banana Turkish taffy. Mm, no. <laughs> uh oh, our callers are, are dialing in to protest the anti-banana sentiment being expressed on this broadcast. Well, I'm very positive about bananas in general. That was the, well, that was the American banana board. <laughs> All, right. All right, shut that down. <laughs> we're, we're yanking your sponsorship. All right, firstly, before we get started, Alex, you pronounced it turmeric, but I... I believe an alternative and acceptable pronunciation is turmeric. Turmeric? Does it not have, how many R's does it actually have? It has more R's than one might <laughs> suspect. Right. You pronounced it phonetically correct, but I believe okay. that it is acceptable to yeah. call it turmeric. I and believe I was so too. a little bit about that, but that's way off topic. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> true. I was also actually thinking about that because I do pronounce it turmeric, but it is spelled turmeric, so I've never been certain. Um, well, I think that that's an interesting, I, I prefer to be phonetically correct than actually correct. <laughs> right. I've, I've, I've dedicated my life to, if nothing else, to, to that principle. Very good. So, but, uh, so should we contextualize this a little bit more, though? Yes, um, probably. Do, okay. do you want to continue? So there is this study um, from uh, 
the remains of 16, uh, 16 skeletal remains from two sites in Israel, from uh, mainly from the Bronze Age and the early Iron Age. And the two sites are Megiddo in the north and Tel Irani in the south. And um, they analyzed, as you said, uh, the, the plaque on the teeth um, of, of these 16 individuals and they found um, sort of fossilized remains of these items, certainly the turmeric and the soybean and the way they expressed the presence of banana was through the presence of a particular enzyme. Um, so they called it for much of the article, they referred to it as probable banana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they did. And, and one of the interesting things with banana, and I don't understand the science of it, of course, let me just make that clear right away, is, is they did say something like um, there was um, something about a protein that triggers the ripening in bananas that was found on, I think, one person's um, dental remains. So I was curious about that because it's not, they didn't find remains of bananas and they were explaining that this is a soft fruit and it completely disintegrates. But the protein that triggers the ripening in bananas, I am assuming that this is something that human saliva produces and when it comes into contact with a banana. But I would have actually liked a little more clarity on that. Um, well, I, if there are any human saliva experts out there, <laughs> please, please be in touch. I was just fascinated by this idea that your dental plaque um, contains all of these micro remains, including, and I wrote it down, pollens, fungal particles, diatoms, foraminifera, um, sponge spicules, charcoal, fibrous insect remains, and um, other miscellaneous stuff. And I found this fascinating and kind of gross and I immediately went to floss vigorously <laughs> after, I, after I read this. So the American Dental Society did come out with a policy paper about a year or 18 months ago saying we don't really need to floss. Really? Really. Yeah. But dentists, of course, when I asked my dentist, he, he immediately said, no, no, you must, you must keep flossing. Good. So I, I don't know about that. I will say that toothpaste as a, as a uh, consumer product in the West did not really take hold until the 1920s uh, through the efforts of a ad person at Pepsodent. That's interesting. Uh, but weren't people using other things? Like they were using baking soda before that. But I believe in a statistical analysis, most people did not really brush their teeth, I think. Hmm. Yeah, that's I mean, interesting. <clears throat> this, this also leads to speculation now that we're living in a society where um, let's hope a large proportion of people do brush their teeth, future archeologists are not gonna be able to figure out the details of what we're eating because we'll have our plaques scraped off because we go to our dentists every six months. Well, I don't, but most people go to their dentists. But every we six have months. food blogs now that are- That's true. Food blogs and, and menus and- Right. Uh, you know. In the past, people essentially blogged with, with their teeth themselves. <laughs> Well, this is this is another interesting thing. So, so um, there's the historical information that we can get from the blogs, but then there's the the microarchaeological information that we can get from people's teeth. And there was a lot in this article, collecting not just uh, leading towards discussing this this microarchaeology, the plaque, but there's a lot in the article discussing other ways that archaeologists have known really for decades about. Um, 
long distance trade where far away stuff like bananas, like turmeric comes from and that, that it was in the, the Near East. So that was an interesting aspect to me. What? Turmeric. <laughs> difficult to say. <laughs> I think it, I think it may, I think it it forces the lips into an ungainly position. <laughs> I think I think my my lips are ungainly in the in the best of times. But I it's think, it's I, worth noting though that um, soybeans um, originate in China, yeah. bananas originate in New Guinea, right. and the the T word <laughs> <laughs> item originates in the in the Indus Valley. So th for all of these um, products, commodities- Sesame. Sesame. Sesame is more local and sesame had been around for a while. Um, it's interesting because um, there, there's a little bit of lack of clarity with sesame. Originally they say it's some kind of an exotic import and then they note, of course, it's an Akkadian word to begin with, one of right. the few Akkadian words that's, that's made it into the English language. and. And then they say, no, it's something local. And then they tease out the history and it seems to go back to at least the third millennium. But I will say that there was a little bit of uh, lack of, of clarity regarding the origins of sesame. Um, and then they threw a couple of things that are near and dear to my heart in there, the chicken. Right. Uh, so yeah, there was a lot of good information about, there was a, this was a wonderful uh, article yeah. in that it, it raised a lot of important issues and brought together a lot of disparate data that has been circulating and that we sort of knew about in very odd and idiosyncratic ways, all into one <clears throat> nice piece that will now serve as a platform for putting together a new understanding of exactly how interconnected the ancient world was. Yeah. Right, so, so yeah. Even, even 20 years ago, and certainly more than that, when we talked about Near Eastern interconnections, long distance trade in the Bronze Age, certainly, we're really just talking about tin, um, carnelian, and lapis lazuli, or lapis lazuli, as <laughs> as Miss Melink used to say it. Apparently, Not, no, it was it was Brunild Ridgeway. Oh, oh, oh Miss Ridgeway, right, right. And uh, and we can throw obsidian into that. Right, much earlier. Much no obsidian, you know, right, much earlier, but um, but I think it, I think that's an important one to consider. Right. Well, one thing that the article pointed to, in in and again, uh, just like you said, JP, and and what I was getting to earlier is um, that the real value of this article is all of the collecting of all of the previous references to all the long distance trade that was going on, and I'll throw in there the fact that zebubles which are well known in the Near East were not local. And everybody has known that they had zebubles or they were aware of zebubles for decades of archeologists have been aware of this. Um, and other, well, the chickens also, where are the chickens from? Anyone remember? India, India. okay. India. But I think that there's also a lot of imprecision about the original domestication of chickens. It could okay. have been China, certainly at some point India. Um, so I think that's also a little bit imprecise, other than to say that chicken is definitely uh, a domesticated import to the Eastern Mediterranean or Southern Le or the Levant. Right, right, that's interesting. And then the other thing I didn't know that I learned from here is um, that in King Tut's tomb, there was a banana leaf. 
So, you know, bananas were getting around at least in small quantities. Uh, and, and we knew that before, but now we have more evidence and a different sort of evidence for it. Could that have been the African banana? Weren't there sort of two? Yeah, yeah, there were two. And, and I think it probably was the African banana. So, so let's, let's concentrate on the, on the banana. And, and you guys are the experts because I, I really don't eat. I try not to eat mushy fruit. Are there fruits that you eschew? How do you feel about guava or papaya? Is it, is it the mouthfeel or is it the taste? Uh, it's the mouthfeel. I like, I like mangoes. I like guavas and papayas. But there's something about the, the, um, the dry mushiness of mm -hmm. the banana that I find... Um, unacceptable really, <laughs> in any circumstance but, but it's not about me and my, my banana, well, my I mean, banana. Ultimately, this podcast is about all of us well <laughs> i mean we're, we're certainly not bringing any real enlightenment about these issues well but, but, but we're at, whatever we're peeling back the layers so to speak <laughs> oh oh yes uh, but uh, you know my my reaction to 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 this was you know twofold. The first, the first Near Eastern person to eat a banana. <laughs> right. What was, what was their reaction? Sure. Well, hold it. Yeah. Now that you bring that up, I mean, let's let's backtrack. The first Near Eastern or any other person to eat a raw oyster. I mean, how did that whole thing work? So, forget. I mean, bananas. <laughs> I can see. Right. An oyster. That thing. Well, that's true. But then, then you have to, once you start down that road, then you end up thinking, you know, how did the first proto, proto, I don't know. <laughs> you know shut up and eat your snails, kid. That's what's for dinner. Yeah, yeah. All right. no, Back to the banana. Okay, uh, so the first person in the Near East to eat a banana leads right, to the first person in the Near East to slip on a banana peel ooh. and leads to the first clown college. That's right. <laughs> Which I think are that's attested in in in, in Mesopotamian texts of the uh, of the Sealand dynasty. But um, no, I. But so you know, this this kind of uh, this this kind of adventurism. But that leads to the second part of my observation, which which is about um, the elite use of bananas, and or <laughs> elite kinds of um, of foods and and display and the way that foodstuffs play into these kinds of patterns of, of elite, um, you know, demonstrations and behaviors and, you know, uh, the banana as an elite symbol. Yes. And, and right. right that's important. It, wasn't there, isn't there a, uh, I don't know, a fourth or third millennium Mesopotamian ceramic type, the fruit stand? Does it have bananas on it? And no, weren't there the, oh, those these with the hanging down? Yeah, they were just platters on a long, on a big, you know, whatever. Yeah, these these things would be displayed. We talk a lot about feasting, and we thought we knew what the feast right. uh, meant. We thought it meant the whole Mediterranean, uh, you know, the Mediterranean diet. And now we can expand outward. Now we can say, oh, right, the feasting also included. And not only is the banana a fruit, but it also has, you know, it's, it's a very vivid color. It has a real smell to it. So now we can sort of work outward 
from these elite displays of you know consumption into the into the into the color palette of the Bronze Age, and really specifically, we're talking about the Middle Bronze Age. I don't know what this what this issue is with not being specific about which Bronze Age, being as at least the early and the middle and late are quite distinctive. But regardless, I think I have a whole other It's a middle Bronze Age tomb. It's a middle Bronze Age tomb. So uh, and also the smells. I have some familiar smells that we can associate, um, you know, sitting, <laughs> sitting around some, uh, some, some uh, entertaining uh, scenario at McGee's. Well, Please enjoy my here's the only part. <laughs> here's the only part of the article that, that I sort of um, have take it a little issue with, which is um, we have to take this evidence together with all the other evidence we already have, right? Which includes textual evidence and includes visual evidence. You can have lots of, uh, well, more Iron Age than Bronze Age depictions of feasting in Mesopotamia, certainly. And um, and not not so much not so many depictions in the Levant, but regardless, we even though these are coming in, we know there are bananas coming in. We know there's well, turmeric well, coming well, in. Let's so let's stop I, there. Wait, wait, wait. They're not, the wait, bananas no. are coming in. <laughs> wait. Okay. Right. Right. So uh, let me finish then. Let me finish. We can't take too much. We can't. We can't put too much into this little bit of plaque stuff because there are no depictions of bananas anywhere, and there are no mentions of bananas in any of the historical texts. Not even the ones that deal with long distance trade. So yes, there clearly there is some evidence of people having eaten bananas at some point in their life, and I think this might be what you're you're coming towards that maybe it was somebody who had been traveling abroad who ate a banana while abroad and then came back and died well, and had the banana residue in his mouth. Um, I was mouth. in a port city. Everything was incredible. The marketplaces were humongous and strange and exotic. And I ate this yellow skinned fruit and had had this very thick aroma to it. Right, except by the time this person got back they died before they could write all that down because we don't have any evidence of them well, writing it down or sharing their bananas. We don't have any when a moon. We're lacking any Levantine when a moons. And this speaks to this issue. I don't know. I, I, maybe Alex, you should, you should go first because you had something, but it speaks to a larger issue about the Southern Levant, uh, regardless of all of the exotica that we can now identify. But Alex, you were going to say? Well, it, it, the bananas don't, the bananas don't travel, so there are only two scenarios. Somebody, somebody went somewhere once and ate a banana, <laughs> and came back to Megiddo and died, or you know maybe two people, um, or somebody brought a banana and managed to grow a banana at Megiddo. No, you can't. Um, you have to, you, they, there was a thing in the article. You can't. That's not happening. There's, yeah. there's no seeds. It has to be a cutting. Maybe it's a dried banana. Maybe it's a banana chip. But that's what they were saying in the article, and that's the only. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think it has to be from a cutting. So I think the most likely scenario is that it was dried and that dried, <laughs> dried banana chips, as crazy as it might seem, <laughs> were, were being schlepped across Eurasia as, you know, as caravan food. And which, as, yeah. which and is I don't why know. there's no depiction. Right. Um, it just fell into because the category of of yeah. little uh, dry disc-shaped objects that you can read. Right. I think that my, here's my problem with this idea of the banana chips. 
that's a real leap, okay? And that's what we call an assumption. And um, as Felix Unger said, and others as well, you know what happens when you assume. So I don't need to finish the thought. Well, <laughs> and that's, okay, so this raises another kind of an interesting question, not really, the way we as archeologists think uh, and the use of assumptions and uh, the use of, you know, how far we push and pull the data. And certainly when we were coming up, there was a tradition of, of, of scholars who stayed very close to the data and didn't push their interpretations very far. And then those that pushed their interpretations incredibly far and made all sorts of assumptions and created whole worlds out of, you know, a few potsherds that may or may not have dated to a certain time period. And I think that now, increasingly with all of the scientific data that we are allowing our inferences to expand exponentially, that we're allowed to push the data much further than we ever have before, because we have little bits of information that are you know, really exciting, really interesting, really provocative, and that allow us to do a little bit of world building on a very small amount of plaque. Uh, and I don't know, I mean, I think back in the day, we were very, very, <clears throat> we in particular, our generation and the people who we studied with, we were very careful about pushing data too far. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that was, I think part of the whole biblical archeology span critique was don't push the data too far because you're just holding it into biblical narrative. And so we sort of retrenched. But now all of this exciting scientific, uh, the extraction of all this exciting scientific information allows us to now sort of open up to much larger and much less demonstrable kinds of inferences that we draw. Yeah. But I think that that's legitimate. I mean, the bananas were there. They got there somehow. Um, when I was reading the article and they kept talking about traders, Levantine traders in Southeast Asia or South Asia, I found that quite implausible because I agree with you, Rachel, that that would have shown up in some way. It would yeah. have been some kind of <laughs> strange reference or some kind of a, you know, some kind of a geographical term that we had no idea what it was or something like that. Right. <clears throat> and there just doesn't seem to be any of that. On the other hand, the bananas are there. The soybeans are there. You know, right. all of this stuff is there. And I think that there is a legitimate reason to now maybe create those, the worlds, a world in which it might have gotten there through ways in which we might not predict. Right. I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that this is sort of more evidence for down the line trade, which had been more invisible prior to this. And I think just going back for a second to the assumptions issue, um, one of the, one of the, well, there was the main article and then National Geographic picked it up and Smithsonian Magazine picked it up. And one of them, in fact, was National Geographic. The headline is Philistines had a taste for far flung foods. And the reason they could get away with this headline is because one of the two sites where these 16 pieces of skeletal material, dental material came from was Tellyrani in the South from the early Iron Age, which um, had a significant Philistine presence. 
However, we don't really know who these skeletons were, or maybe the excavators know, I don't remember who these, if these skeletons are clearly associated with Philistine, whatever, but there's, there's this huge leap from the evidence of, yes, somebody here ate a banana once to Philistines eating lots of bananas. And I think that's, that's, that's not what the excavators have done. That's what the, the media has done with it. And that's where the assumptions get a little bit, um, a little bit outlandish. Right, and I think we can expect that from all popular kinds of media, because that's what right. popular media does. They're all about content. They're all about attracting audiences. So I think that's okay. fine. And I also want to note that that, um, that image, that reconstruction of, the, of, a, of a market in uh, the National Geographic was, you know, was, was great, was wonderful. I'm sure it'll show up in PowerPoint slides, classes <laughs> in archeology. span from here until the end of academia as we know it. Um, but it's also quite fanciful. And, yeah. um, you know, it, it's exactly what you say. You know, a couple of banana chips does not mean that there were big baskets filled with, you know, tropical fruit. It, it, right. there, it may be. Maybe they'll find, you know, more skeletal uh, dental material that shows guava and papaya. And eventually we'll get, you know, the lime and the coconut. And... Uh, <laughs> I've been waiting all day to use that line. <laughs> Good one. Uh, so, um, so that that image is is fanciful, but you know. Um, but here's an example of how um, scientific data can also go the other way. So, so let's let's concede that there's no evidence just yet that there are hitherto undetected banana groves in the, in the Southern Levant in the second millennium BCE. And that the likely scenario is that somebody ate a, ate a banana on a trip or that banana chips um, made their way, made their way west and some, somebody ate some. However, um, let's contrast this with the microarchaeological evidence from um, Ramat Rachel, from the early first millennium BC, where using their uh, big scientific goggles and tricorders and things, um, they examined the, uh, the, the pollen trapped in the plaster of these gardens outside the, the palace site. And lo and behold, they found that um, the gardens were growing citrons, um, you know, etrogs, which is one of the, the master species of, uh, of citrus, which comes from South Asia somewhere. And nobody suspected that anybody was, was growing these things. And here you have pollen that's indicative of large, large or large-ish numbers of these trees being grown on the site for whatever consumption. Um, so there's evidence that suggest, you know, microarchaeological evidence that really does suggest larger, larger scale consumption, and it's in a royal site, so it's an elite product probably, as opposed to the banana evidence or, or the vanillin evidence from the Megiddo tomb that uh, nice. was scraped out of a, scraped out of a pot, um, I think from the same tomb. Yeah. But, uh, so somebody had a jar full of, you know, vanilla extract more or less. And uh, again, an elite, elite product. So we're, 
So maybe we're talking about different kinds of elite um, processes and elite behaviors, uh, you know, based around based around food, for one thing. Mm-hmm. And that that interests me because I have an interest in food, <laughs> being an <laughs> increasingly large individual. And I'm just wondering how how all this plays out in second or or first millennium um, Southern Levantine society. Uh, And and that's, I think that's a really important observation because this is something that I was thinking about and we've already sort of discussed a little bit, um, which is all of this information is great and it's all very important and useful in that it adds a lot of flesh to the skeleton of how we understand Bronze Age society but it doesn't change our understanding of the nuts and bolts of the Southern Levant in the middle or late Bronze Age or early Iron Age. That even if there is much greater interaction with South Asia, Southeast Asia, whether it's uh, overseas or overland, we're still talking about a very small scale society. We're still talking about a society which as far as we know does not have any kind of uh, robust notational system in in terms of, of uh, you know economic texts. I mean, certainly there's been enough excavated from Khatsor and Megiddo and Lachish and and Don and all of, and a bunch of other sites to let us know that, however they're keeping economic data, it's not very, writing it down. They're not writing it down, and it's very different than Mesopotamia. This is still a very small-scale society, and and it's still a very small-scale society in which the socioeconomic distance from the top to the bottom is of a completely different and lesser scale than of the Mycenaean world or of the Hittite world or Mes- certainly Mesopotamian Egypt. And in that regard, this new information doesn't change any of those kinds of interpretations, it just means that the world was a more global and larger place, which we kind of knew, but has never been brought together and there's never been uh, a real focus on the fact that globalization occurred much earlier and in a much more pronounced and robust way than than the ancient world is given credit for. So I think that that's, for me, that's an important note that now we have a lot of the you know, bottom-up kind of data on what's happening and what's floating around. But from a top-down perspective, I don't really think a whole lot changes. People aren't making fortunes on exotic you know, commodities. People aren't, you know, maybe this, a couple of traders went someplace and picked up, <laughs> you know, ate some of these things and got some plaque on their teeth. But it's not like people were importing soybeans and that there was a market in soybean futures, none of that's going on. Right, right. I think that's absolutely on target. I I agree 100%. And I want to kind of jump off that and point out that, yeah, exactly the bottom up versus the top down. And what we already knew can't be discarded. And what we already knew is how they wanted, and this is an old idea of mine, how they wanted to portray themselves, what they can. So here we are in a society, food blogs, everybody's into exotic foods these days, especially in quarantine, because what else can you do but cook? But um, what they wanted to portray, what they wrote about bringing back from places like 
punt and and um, and where else um, other places uh, Arabia what they're writing about is ivory and ostrich eggs and ebony and frankincense and myrrh um, these are the things that they and that's also what they're putting in their tombs sort of for posterity what and above all metals and metals yeah. and metals right Right, and, and so these are the commodities that they considered elite commodities. And that doesn't take away from the fact that, yeah, they're getting turmeric and soybeans and, and bananas and sesame, but it, we just have to keep it in perspective that they didn't think this is as important as we think it is um, right now when we've just discovered it. Uh, they really wanted to emphasize the ivory and the metal and so on. Right, well, in, in their in their representations to each other and to yeah. the future, so to speak. Right, but right. How did it function? How did banana chips and, and turmeric um, function in the moment in that society? Uh, what, did it, what did it represent and to whom? So, so you're a king or a queen or something at Megiddo and, and you have a jar of vanilla extract well, what do you what do you do with that? How do you how do you lord that over other people in some kind of uh, in some kind of ritual context or feasting context, or you just sit there and look at it like it's a and smell it like it's a you know a fancy Fabergé egg that you know never leaves your house, but you you know that it's something extra super cool that came from far far away. Um, or was it more of a display? And, and that the process of getting it to you was the main thing. That that's the part that people understood. Oh, you know, that's what that's what elites do. They get all this wacky stuff, <laughs> the banana, the bags of banana chips. Um, but you know, we don't, so we don't have access to them. Here's but, my theory. I'll make an assumption. Um, <laughs> so, um, so my theory is they got their tiny jar of vanilla or, or, or turmeric and their cooks kept it in their kitchens and introduced it into recipes, baking with the vanilla and whatever, and putting sesame seeds on the bagels, um, or whatever. And, uh, and the elites would, <laughs> and the elites would eat it. And they wouldn't necessarily know, the kings themselves wouldn't necessarily know what they were eating, but everybody in the court would know, ooh, the king's food tastes better and different than anybody else's foods. So it could have been as subtle as that, that this food is, is, is sort of subtly different or, or better, and that's because he's a king. Or, or it could have been more along the lines of, they had access to this stuff, but it, it was, it was a- It's not it meant to be used. It was an elite prerogative that never got fully expressed. Yes, we eat banana chips. Oh, you don't have banana chips? I, didn't, I don't know. I don't know what you do. You're so beneath me. I have no idea what you do, but this is what we do. And it doesn't even demand attention. It doesn't even demand comment. One month we get banana chips. Another month we get, you know, you know a, a block of tofu, uh, which nobody likes, but, you know, <laughs> it, it costs a fortune. The other thing is, and I agree with you, Rachel, that, it might represent just this notional idea of exotic. Like, oh yeah, the king's food tastes, I, can't, I don't know what it tastes, I've never had that taste. It's incredible. But there isn't a lot of precision because it's not part of a regularized exchange or it's not part of a regularized structural 
component of the economy or the of or being elite and and certainly things like vanilla and turmeric which had both medicinal and aromatic components so perfume medicine those would be very mysterioso kinds of kinds of things like yes we use perfume oh i love the perfume that you have on and, and it's like yes i got it you know we we got this little jar from you know this famous trader and you know, once it's over, once it's done, it's done. But it's not, it's not been internalized as a prestige element. It's just yeah. part of a very amorphous group of commodities that elites have access to. Well, smells generally haven't been conceptualized as a part of, of ancient life um, in a, you know, a, a full sort of way, but, you know, smellscapes are beginning to be discussed in, in certain contexts. And that's, that might be where vanillin and cinnamon and nutmeg and jasmine all come in. Right. But, um, you know, to create this, this, you know, very different kind of uh, olfactory environment that contrasts with the general stink of Bronze Age life. Right. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think th there might be something to that, I, I, but I very much doubt that in the Southern Levant, where as you say, the, the distance between the top of the society to the bottom of the society is not all that great, that anybody else um, besides the elites and a few people that they have over are going to be smelling this stuff or tasting this stuff. Right. right. Uh, as, opposed to, as opposed to the much, much more demonstrative, and we know how much more demonstrative um, Mesopotamian, Egyptian, Hittite, you know, Mycenaean society, Minoan societies were, and they've got lots, lots more exotic stuff, and they're flashing it around for everybody, and it's it's much more, uh, it's a much more systematic means of demonstrating social status. Right, um, but there also might be a uh, an element of scale involved in all of this. So you know, we certainly know about monkeys because you know, Aegean wall paintings are filled with monkeys. Right. So that, that, that's something that they knew about and they had some reason to represent it and now we know about it. But if all of this stuff was well integrated, vanilla, sesame, et cetera, uh, not sesame, but turmeric, then I think we would see a little bit of it show up in some kind of textual accounts. The Amarna letters, certainly. Right all of the, you know, all of the Neo-Assyrian, Neo-Babylonian texts, we would right. get some reference to it. The fact that we don't really seem to have any reference to this, either iconographic or textual, suggests that it's part of the background, uh, but it's not structural. Yeah, I agree 100%. I didn't know we'd all be on the same page about this, but we all uh, are on the same page about this. Yeah, and I'm feeling a bit peckish after this whole discussion. <laughs> so this speaks to the issue then of when, when these exotic fruits were wed to alcoholic beverages. Were they eating, were they drinking banana daiquiris? You know, is there a Bronze Age pina colada? Uh, you know, did, did bananas foster, you know, predate uh, Tipitina's? These are all these are all right. the exciting it's, questions. They're using the they're using the cinnamon to make fireball. Yeah. 
<laughs> or, or something, or, something along those lines. The chickens probably don't figure into this discussion per se. And we really haven't picked up on the chickens. <laughs> and, you know, the chickens, I suppose you can, you know, you put it, you need, a, you need a twist on your, uh, on your beverage. Well, I'm, that, that may be actually a very um, economical way to deploy very, very limited resources like these exotic things, which are coming into um, this, this context, uh, you know, where the king of Megiddo um, has a meeting with his local administrators or with the other great kings of Middle Bronze Age, Middle Bronze Age Canaan. And he says, here, you know, let's, uh, let's do a L'chaim. And, <laughs> oh, this is, oh, that flavor? Oh, we call that cinnamon. <laughs> Pretty cool, actually, right? And everybody else is going, oh, that's, you know, wow, that, he must, he's got some connection. I know a guy. <laughs> and then when you don't have it for three months or six months or a year, then it's just, yes, it came and it went. And we, we never get, got access to it again. But now we have this other thing. Now we have, you know, coriander liqueur from Crete and, right. uh, you know, things like that. But it's on your teeth for all time. But it's on your right. Yes. Yeah. There's also the medicinal, sorry, the, the medicinal uses that it well, could work exactly good. the same way that they discovered turmeric has these curative powers and yeah. they, they keep a supply and then they run out. And maybe it's only the king's own physician who has this supply until the next time somebody goes which, somewhere. Which is ironic because one of the main things about turmeric is it's an anti-inflammatory. So right. does no work, does literally no heavy lifting. <laughs> is the last person who needs turmeric. Whereas right. all of the, you know, all of the, uh, the agrarian peasant folk, man, they, yeah. they totally need, you know, as much turmeric as they can get. That's uh, true, that's true. Well, there is, there is one pharmacy essentially that's found at uh, Ebla in the third millennium. And it's in the, royal, in the corner of the Royal Palace. And it has all of these little jars that are filled with, you know, unguents and, and, and certain things. And, you know, the structure of the structure of medicine in antiquity is, is a kind of a, a question, you know, we know about sort of base, base medicine, you know, uh, you're bitten by a snake, rub some, rub something on it and, you know, sacrifice a, sacrifice a bat to this God or something, but elite medicine, is is an interesting is an interesting uh, kind of domain, and <clears throat> again, it's much more much easier to document in in Mesopotamia and and in Egypt than it is in the Levant. Yeah. I was uh, just going to say it could be an entirely different system than in Mesopotamia or in Egypt. You know, one could be socialized medicine, one could be privatized medicine. What I really want to know is at Ebla was this pharmacy. Was the floor raised? So, you know how pharmacies. The, oh, so you look down. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. How early does that go back? Because if if the floor was raised at Ebla, I think that has you know serious, serious implications for all of Western medicine. That's true. Um, I'll I'll look up that I'll look up that article. I'll have to find that out. <laughs> um, but you know, it's interesting. I'm glad you brought up the pharmacy at, at Ebla because again. 
this speaks to this issue that there's a lot of disparate data out there that has not been collected, that really needs to be collected to yeah. out a better picture of what's going on. So in the late Bronze Age, we know that there's lots of stuff coming either from the Black Sea area or through the Black Sea area that shows up in the Eastern Mediterranean. And now that needs to be sort of rolled into all of the stuff coming from, you know, further east in whatever guise. And so now we can sort of, I think it's important to sort of bring all of this material and start getting a real sense of, of the pace, intensity, and scale of all of these interactions in the Middle Bronze Age and the Late Bronze Age. So another example of that is we know that uh, New Kingdom Egypt imported all sorts of exotica from Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and, and that too is from a very long distance and they right. probably had no understanding of the sources of a lot of this stuff. Maybe they had some understanding, but not a very precise understanding, but they were importing it and they were importing it. And Rachel, to speak to your point, they were representing it. So it was obviously structurally very important for them. They would depict it. They would, uh, uh, it would, it would crop up in texts and things like that. So now we really need to start thinking about Sub-Saharan Africa to South Asia. And then right. I think, and, uh, you know, I think it was, what was it? Tepe Yaya, all these chlorite bowls and where does chlorite? Oh, right. oh yeah. I mean, these kinds of world systems, um, Algaze did a, did a very, you know, good job of explaining and exploring, you know, third millennium world systems, fourth millennium and third millennium world systems. And now I think we need to sort of go back and, and, and rethink second millennium world systems and what that means uh, from, again, from a bottom up and a top down, because from a top down, I don't see any structural change. Right. Uh, these were little kingdoms. These were, you know, ultimately they became subservient to large imperial forces. Um, they were not particularly literate. Uh, they didn't seem to have a very expansive sense of economic organization. Uh, we have very little in the way of juridical information, so very different from what's going on at, at Ugarit. And I don't think any of that changes. Um, right. But their life is, but we now know that their life was much more tasty and, and much more colorful and much more uh, aromatic than we uh, understood uh, previous to this article. That's a very important point. And I think the other thing. No, go, go ahead. ahead. All right. So I think the other thing, just jumping off there, is is this article emphasizes uh, what we all, at least us three, understand very well, which is the importance of archaeology versus history, the importance of looking at artifacts and not just texts. And when you when you are, don't look at me like that. <laughs> when when you are. Um, dealing with um, prehistoric periods and you don't have that textual evidence, you're forced to look more closely at data. And because um, places like Mesopotamia and Egypt have so much textual material, 
uh, I think there's been a bit of neglect of other sources um, and now, and, and that is I think being rectified in more recent decades. And also for the Levant, there is a, where we don't have that many texts. Uh, we do have, we do have the tendency now to look, always look at archeology, span but especially to, to now look at microarchaeology. Go ahead. Right. And that, that's fair. I, I, I think that's fair, um, broadly speaking. But, but to look even more deeply at how, at least in the Levant, and especially the Southern Levant, how the picture has been, in a sense, skewed or at least shaped until very recently. Well, what did, what did we have? We have pots. And pots and pottery typology and examination of the pots um, became very much the kind of be all and end all. And everything was then, everything social and economic was, was extrapolated from the pots. And that was decades and decades and decades of, of fanatical emphasis as, as, we, as we well know. We're, we, were, we were part of that. We we're part and parcel to that. I am. And, I mean, my dissertation was on pottery. And, you know, and, and by the time, certainly by the 80s and, and 90s, people began to look at the pottery itself much more carefully, the, the technique, the manufacture, the materials, and they began to fill out a social picture of materials and manufacturing and, that went beyond style and went beyond, well, they traded the pots themselves and maybe what was in them. This kind of very limited two-dimensional picture. The and, integrated typology. And now, say what? The integrated typology. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. My well, contribution. the Dessel vessel really was at the, <laughs> was at the, that yeah. was at the forefront. That was at the forefront. Um, and yeah. <laughs> And, and now you can look at um, you know, the, the microarchaeology of what's embedded in the plaster of a building and what kind of pollen. And you can look at, the, at bones and say, oh, you know, we're gonna do some kind of scientific analysis and find, oh, you know, in the third millennium, they're importing animals from Egypt to the Southern Levant, which you know, all these transformational kinds of, kinds of pictures by by using science, by, by listening to the science. And, and, and in some cases it does change fundamentally the picture. Uh, and in the second millennium, I don't know. It's, I, I, think it, I, I think it could once we have enough data mm -hmm. and, and we can look at these, you know, the vertical, the vertical movement of materials and ideas within this society, as yeah. well as the horizontal uh, frontiers that connect to yes. the far-flung world. I agree with that completely. You're right. That right now we're at the very beginning of this very exciting phase of acquiring all sorts of incredible data, a lot of it in very, very small scientific ways. And we're not going to know how this changes our inter interpretation until, you know, maybe a generation from now. So I think that is, that is a good ob observation that right now we still have the same structure, uh, same structural understanding of Middle Bronze Age, Late Bronze Age, Southern Levant, but that 20 years from now, we might have an accumulation of data which will, which will significantly um, overhaul our understanding. 
Um, yeah. we, don't, we don't know what cinnamon means in the Southern Levant. Well, right. And, and right. on that note, I just thought of, a, of maybe an analog to this, which is the, um, which is the famed Tucson Garbage Project. Mm. Which archaeologists looked at garbage and they compared sort of ethnographic accounts of how people understand what they shop for and what they throw out. And there was a huge disparity between... Yeah also between what people think they buy and what they actually buy and what people say they eat and what they actually right. eat. And most importantly, uh, that one of the big outcomes of that was how, um, and this is of course dating back to the, to the uh, 70s and 80s, how much good food it gets wasted uh, right. uh, by both wealthy people and, and, uh, and poor people, that this was a, this was a, a, a big outcome that people have no idea how much food they're throwing out and they think they're being efficient and they're being inefficient. Um, right. But whatever, that there's a big cognitive dissonance, dissonance between what people think they eat and what they think they buy and what they actually eat and what they actually buy. And right. this could sort of be that same kind of situation in which um, the wealthy, as they express themselves, the elite, as they express themselves, emphasize ivory and emphasize metals and emphasize these other things, but maybe there's a great deal of political and um, social content also going into these things in which they don't represent, but that they all knew about and that they all understood implicitly and that they all had a great deal of um, commitment to. The yeah. things that make them smell better, the things that taste really good, the things that um, add to their, you know, add to their eliteness. Right, right. And let's also not forget that we're dealing with data that comes from, um, and it's true, there's not that much difference in the Southern Levant between the highest level, highest stratum society and the lowest stratum, but um, we're dealing with people who got nice burials. Most people didn't get nice burials. Most people's burials didn't survive. So by definition, even the poorer burials of this, these 16 skeletons that were analyzed are on the upper crust of, of society. And, but I think everything you say still applies. Um, and the, the other thing is that, that um, what we're really talking about in a certain way is the evolution of the discipline of archeology. span from looking, and I guess we said this already before, or maybe I did, um, looking at, um, you know, oh, this is a pretty vase, like, like you have in Greece where the vase painters and the vase potters are all known by name because that was in part the commodity to this idea of, oh, let's look at the shape of the vessel and the typology of the vessel. And now we're coming into the microarchaeology. So, and you're right, in, in you know, 20 years, we're gonna understand the cinnamon or whatever. Um, but we're just seeing how the discipline is moving forward um, as, as we go. Right. Leaving, leaving fossils like ourselves behind. Right. Join the archeological record where someday we, we too will have our teeth scraped and put on a shelf so they can you know, decide that we were eating elites, el elite goods or, or, or non-elite goods or or something, but you know, one one last point. I'm I'm also very interested in. Okay, you know, the banana chip. It's an exotic thing, um, but but commodities change position within relatively within society. So that 150 years ago, um, sturgeon 
were or 200, 150 years ago, were so common in the Hudson River that yeah. they were considered poor people food. Yeah, same with lobster. Lobster was served to prisoners. And, and now that has completely inverted. And you have to you have, to have some, some money in the bank to afford these things. Or you have to be able to be willing to, to spend the money in order to express your, or to demonstrate your position in society, real or aspired in order to, um, you know, do something with, <laughs> to, to, give your, to give your life meaning. So maybe the banana chip is just, is aspirational. <laughs> and there's, it also might bring us to the individual in, in, in proto-history. I don't know what you want to call the middle and late Bronze Age in the Southern Levant. It's not really an historic time period. But um, if you were the king of Megiddo or a trader, in Megiddo, Alex, there would be no banana chips on your teeth. Well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but, there, but there might be other kinds of exotica. Uh, so, you know, it also might, it might start to give us some hints about, oh, you know, there's this, you know, very interesting, you know, desire or appeal of bananas in, you know, in the, in the middle bronze age, but, you know, by, by, the, by the 16th century, you know, no, no one worth their salt has banana chip plaque on their teeth. <laughs> Bananas have been banned right. from my kingdom. Yeah. <laughs> and no right. one knows why. Some right. tyrannical king. <laughs> one last point I want to bring up, which will, that I want to bring up, you can bring up many, <laughs> many, many more points, is the connection uh, between an earlier podcast and uh, marijuana cannabis at Arad and all of these very, you know, mm. tasty, mm. smelly, uh, kinds of um, exotica, uh, you know, they might mutually reinforce each other. Um, so maybe we need to, to think in, in sort of larger, larger contexts about, about a number of these kinds of exotic products or really all exotica, how they work internally, um, mm -hmm. how they complement each other, do they contradict each other? Uh, and that might give us also some insights into aspects of cognition. Uh, about these ancients, which is really one of the weakest points of archaeology, even though there was a discipline, subdiscipline of archaeology that started when, and then uh, I'll leave this to, uh, to you, Alex, uh, cognitive archaeology, uh, Ezra Zubra, what was that, the right. 1980s? Something like that. Mid-80s, yeah. something like that. And, and you don't get, we don't get a lot of that anymore, which is a shame because ultimately, you know, that's sort of the holy grail, right? In archaeology, motivation and cognition. Those are the things that we really, really want to get to. And, and those uh, are the hardest things to get to. Hardest things to get to. And all of the attempts to get to them are often, are often um, not, so, not so great. Uh, yeah. But this might give us some insight because it's, it, 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 it's the sensory kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's actually a really good, we, I, we should leave it there. We should end there, but I did wanna just throw in a, one last tiny point, but I don't wanna take away from that good point, which is, you know, as an analogy, Marmite is just never gonna catch on in the United States. There are some exceptions. People who don't like Marmite outnumber people who don't like bananas, I would say in this country. Um, however, let me just finish the point. Oh. <laughs> um, 
the sparks are flying because maybe so, maybe so. But I, I think there's a cultural sensibility. Well, that, that's true. There is a cultural sensibility, but it also, which has to do with um, intelligence and cultivation in the case of our mind. <laughs> Uh, I think I think there is exotica that is is palatable to all, and there is exotica that is not palatable to all. And perhaps cannabis is an example of something that might be. You know, the best example of that is is caviar. I mean, you know, for for people who eat caviar a lot, are like they, us, are they eating it for taste <laughs> or are they eating it because they're eating caviar? Right. right. We've all probably like had a small amount of caviar and. You know, it is what it is. It's very, very salty. If you like salty things and you like that kind of glossy, you know, mouthfeel, then caviar might be, might be good. Is it great? Uh, that would be hard to say. I haven't had enough, but. Um, right, right. Well, maybe we should just bring it back to your, your last point, JP, about, um, about how things are all fitting together and that we're getting a much wider, you phrased it better, but a wider view of, of uh, world systems. Um, and right. and, and integrating, world, integrating the world system, so to speak, with the sensory world. Right. Um, yeah. Integrating with the individual world of the banana chip consumer <laughs> to the larger cultural world of um, the meaning of banana chips in the Southern Levant, if they had such a, if there was such a thing. Um, and now bananas are hugely important. Um, so, you know, X number of thousands of years later, it's all, we've all come full circle. Right. Yeah. In some, yeah. In nice. some sensory way. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Very good. Well, we'd like to remind listeners never to keep bananas in the refrigerator. We'd also like to thank Eras Dessel for composing our theme music. And as always, we'd like to thank our sponsor, the Republic Aircraft Company of Farmingdale, Long Island. To get in touch, leave us a comment, send us an email at thisweekintheancientneareast, all one word, you can sound it out, at gmail.com, or send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177, Boston, Mass., 02134.